Thank you, praise team. Usually this is part of the service where we dismiss kids for junior church. However, since Paul is on vacation and I'm filling in for him, uh, I've decided actually to bring junior church up here to the main service. And I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. Actually, I'm going to tell you why right now. Uh, because last week, oh, didn't I? I thought I pressed that button long enough. Here we go. Nope. Hold on. Uh, the reason why I'm bringing it up to the service is because last week, down in junior church, we covered the topic of why the Bible is, or really, how can we trust the Bible? Uh, not just why is it important, but how can we trust it? And we went through some of the history of how we got the Bible. I finished that class, and I thought, man, this is actually necessary for today, because as we get into, well, why is it important to us? That's not just for kids, that's also for us as adults too. We need to know why we can rely upon the Bible. Now, the reason for all that is, is because we live in a world of misinformation and mistrust. And Christians absolutely need to know that they have something that they can rely upon that holds truth, and that is absolutely certain. And so we need to bring this to light, really. I mean, let's just think about it this way. Over the last couple months, you guys have probably heard various perspectives on the COVID-19. You've probably heard a lot of different information coming at you from a lot of different ways. In fact, you probably don't believe some of the information coming at you, which, to be fair, when you have multiple sources coming from multiple different angles saying multiple different things, it's hard to know what is real and what is not. However, it doesn't just go with COVID. Our country has been dealing with things like this over the last couple years. I mean, let's go back just a, a few years ago. We, we dealt with gender and sexuality. What is that? We had a lot of different scientists come out and say, well, gender and sexuality is fluid. It's not really what you're born with. And we were like, wait, what? How is that even possible? That's misinformation. And people are being taught that stuff today. Few years, well, not even a few years, probably a year before that was marriage. Well, marriage isn't necessarily between one man and one woman. It could just be between a, a person and a person. Okay, what? So you see that the world is bringing up misinformation. And for us as Christians, we really don't trust what the world has to say sometimes. And we need to know, well, what is it that we can rely upon? What is it that we can trust in? And that's why the Bible is so important. So today we're going to look through that. Now, with junior church, I don't think I have all the Federoffs are here, but I don't think I have any kids from junior church last week. So here's the deal. You as adults will get to answer some of these questions. We'll see how smart you are with this. Uh, here are some things that the kids learned last week in junior church. The word Bible simply means book. Yeah, good. You guys got this, man. The word Bible simply means book. And so when we tag it as the Holy Bible, we're tab tabbing it as the Holy Book. Now, what's interesting is that this book contains how many books? 66. Good. Yeah, see, so you guys are right on top of this. Great. Yes, yeah, 66 books makes up the, the books, make up the Bible. Man, how wonderful. Now, think about it this way. It was written by over how many different authors? Over, you could throw a number out. It's okay. I don't expect you to know the exact of what I'm going to say, but what? 40. Joe was downstairs last week. I know that. It's, <laughs> it's okay. Um, but yeah, 40 
Over 40 authors wrote this book. Now, think about this. Trying to get 40 people in a room to agree upon one thing at one time is really hard to do, right? Now, imagine trying to get over 40 different authors over many, many years to agree upon one thing at one time and never contradict each other. Clearly, this is a God-sent book. This is a divine book. Now, how many years did it take to write the Bible? And I'm going to say over how many years? Uh, you're close. A little less than that. Ten hundred? Uh, that's a little high. Say it took over 1,600 years to complete the Bible. Now, here's how we get this. From the very beginning of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Job, which are the earliest books, to the final bit of Revelation. Remember, the New Testament was written in how many years? Roughly about 50 years, from about 30 AD to 98, or sorry, that's 60 years, sorry, about 60 years, 30 AD to 90 AD. We know Revelation was completed about 90 AD. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy go way, 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 way back. But there's also a time in history where God is silent, right? In between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the end of Malachi to the beginning of the Gospels, which we call the silent years. So we kind of factor those out. So from when Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, to Numbers, Deuteronomy, to Malachi was written, we're talking about 1,500 years. And I'm going to say roughly, because those aren't exact dates. But then the New Testament only takes a short amount of time. The gospel writers and everyone puts together all of their writings very, very quickly. Because the church is such a new thing, information needs to get out. And so when you look at Paul's letters, they were written quickly. Now, here we go. The authors came from various walks of life. What were some of their roles or jobs of the authors of Scripture? What were they? Fishermen. Yeah, the apostles. Some of the apostles were fishermen, simple people who wrote scripture. What else? Tax collectors. We had some tax collectors in there. What else? Andy, I, th I thought you said something. Okay, tax collector. What else? That's two jobs. There's more. Russ? Tent maker. Yep, Paul was a tent maker. So was probably Abraham at some point. But <laughs> Prophets. Very good. Shepherds. Doctor. Kings. Physicians, how about soldiers? Think about this, Joshua was a general. He led the armies of Israel into Canaan. Not only that, David wrote a lot of psalms while he was fighting for King Saul, and in fact, running away from his king because he was so successful in battles and the people liked him more. These authors came from various backgrounds, various jobs, various lifestyles. But God used a variety of men to write the Bible, which is super cool. And then you get to this. The writers were influenced and guided by who to write what they did? The Holy Spirit. Very good. You guys got that. And now for you adults, what is that called? The theological word for when the Holy Spirit guides writers is called Inspiration. Yeah, see, you guys are on top of this. Great. Yeah, inspiration of Scripture.
And we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 here today. But it says, and all scripture is God-breathed or breathed out by God. It's inspired by God. He used men and their unique backgrounds and their unique styles of writing. But he guided them with his spirit to write down what they wrote, which is cool. So we know we have God's words. Now, 1,600 years is a long time for the writings of Scripture to get put down. But we're talking a long time for them all to get together. So the question is, how did they survive? And how do we know what we have in our Bibles? How many of you guys have your Bibles here today? How many of you guys ever wonder, how do we know what we got right here in our Bibles is what, what the guys wrote way, 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 way back? It's a good question. In fact, it's where the world comes to kind of a standpoint. They're like, there's no way you can trust what is in this book if you're saying that it was written that long ago. Let's talk about that a little bit. First, let's talk about how Scripture was written. Back then, uh, back in the Old Testament, they would use papyrus. That was kind of the common thing. It was reeds, uh, cross-stitched together, pressed down into little segments about 6 inches to 15 inches of pieces glued then together to make a scroll. They would write on this stuff. But the problem is, just like our paper, does it last forever? No, it can get crumpled up, it can get torn, it can get burned, all of that stuff. So what would they do naturally? Once one was written, they would start copying and making another one. And these guys were cautious. This, yep, that's right, Andy. The scribes were extremely cautious when they dealt with Scripture because they themselves believed that this was God's word and they better be careful. They made a mistake. They scratched the scroll and started anew. Not only papyrus, but they also used stone, clay, and leather. So let's talk about stone real quick. One of the cool things I brought up from junior church last week is they actually, archaeologists found a stone. It's called Hammurabi's Law. It's probably about a six-foot, seven-foot, eight-foot stone with the laws of Babylon engraved, carved, chiseled into it. Why do you think the king put his laws into a giant stone like that? You ever think about that? Why would someone carve something into stone? It's, it's lasting. Good. It lasts a whole lot longer than paper or papyrus. What else? He means it. It's what? It's life-changing. It's permanent, right? It's permanent. Because in order to change a law, you have to destroy the whole rock and start anew, carve the whole thing over again. It's why we use it, what? It's been written in stone. We mean that it's done, final. Now think about this. What piece of scripture was written in stone? Yeah, the Ten Commandments. That's right. The Ten Commandments. Why do you think God chose stone to write the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments on? He didn't write all 613 laws of the Old Testament on stone, just ten. Why? They're what? It would last, and these were important. Very good. These were important to the people. The law was not given to the people to save them. The law showed the people how sinful they were and also how perfect and holy God is. These Ten Commandments were to serve as kind of like their cornerstone to this whole thing, for them to understand this. 
that they are not equivalent to God, that they are not nearly as perfect as they think they are. Now, the sad thing is, Moses comes down the mountain and smashes them, but Moses has to then go back up and carve them. But then there is also clay. They would use clay. They'd write stuff into pottery. Now, that's no different from what we kind of do. We write things in notebooks. We write things all over pieces of furniture or decorations and things like that. They would use it clay sometimes. Uh, also leather. But the problem is with leather, leather was very expensive, and it was usually used only for the most important documents. Now, later on, Scripture is going to be translated into leather. But the problem here is that in order to get a big enough piece of leather it, to write out Scripture, man, you'd have to grow that cow fat <laughs> to the point where you have to, like, roll it in the field, right? Because you have to skin the thing, stretch the skin out. It's going to dry. It's going to shrink a little bit. And then you're going to write things on it. And so the thing is, leather wasn't used a whole lot. But it was eventually. Eventually, uh, papyrus and leather and stuff like that would be translated back into scrolls, which is very similar to kind of our paper, but the scrolls would be contained in there. Uh, they would be preserved at the temple. Uh, eventually, the copies would be distributed around the world. Um, we, would, we could get into the Greeks with Alexander the Great. He loved preserving knowledge. And what's really cool is he took Old Testament scrolls, translated it into Greek, and made it more available to the world. Because by the time Jesus comes on the scene, he's in a little town of Nazareth in his own synagogue, and they give him what? A scroll. Does anyone remember what scroll he reads from? The scroll of Isaiah. Now, that's a big scroll. That's a big chunking book in our Bibles. It's 66 chapters. He reads from the scroll of Isaiah that they have in their little town, their little city. Why do they have that? Because the Old Testament's already been being copied. It's already being, I don't want to say mass-produced, but it kind of was. It was being disseminated to around the world. Why? Jews were scattered all around the world. They weren't just in Israel anymore. So they needed to get their documents out. Eventually, uh, within uh, hundreds of, or in, um, I think it's two to 300 A.D., things went from scrolls to books to being bound by books, um, and especially with the New Testament. Now, what's key to all of us we need to understand is we don't have the originals. Man, I really wish we did, but we don't have the originals. What we do have is copy after copy after copy of the manuscripts numbering in the thousands. In fact, how many of you guys know what Homer's Iliad is or the Odyssey? Okay, a few of you guys. Second service, not many people knew what this was. This is actually a very famous Greek text. And what happens is scholars use this all the time. They have over 1,500 manuscripts of this text. And the scholars don't question really what's in Homer's Iliad because they're like, well, we can compare text with text with text with text. We know that what's there is what's there. And they only have 1,500. What's really cool about the Bible is the Bible, man, nearly quadruples that. We have 5,800 complete or just fragmented Greek manuscripts. We have over 10,000 Latin manuscripts, which the Latin was translated from the Greek. Then we have the 9,300 other manuscripts in various other ancient languages from all around the world that we can compare to. That's not even talking about the Hebrew manuscripts that we have. Now, how many of you guys know what this is a picture of? The Dead Sea Scrolls, well, more importantly, where they're found, this is the caves of Qumran in Israel. 
This is right next to the Dead Sea within the tunnels or the caves in here that you probably can't see from where you guys are at, but you can Google this online. It's really cool. Shepherds found pots in these caves containing scrolls of the Old Testament dating from 150 B.C. The biggest claim to fame is that they found a complete scroll of Isaiah. Well, okay, uh, as complete as can be with some holes here and there. But the cool thing is scholars look at what they had in Isaiah in 150 B.C. to what we have today, and they say, man, this thing is accurate. And what's even cooler is we look at this and we say, okay, this was 150 years before Christ came on the scene. What did he read from in Nazareth? The scroll of Isaiah. And what Jesus read from, we have stuff that's earlier from that, preserved, which is really cool. And Jesus, man, in his earthly ministry, he used scripture all the time. He quoted from things. Have you not heard? Have you not heard? You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Quoting from the Old Testament for the Septuagint. All right? Super cool. So, let's go into this. What is the Bible? Well, we need to go over that just a little bit. The Bible is broken down into two main sections, Old Testament, New Testament. Most of you guys know that. The books of the law, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It talks about the beginning of the world, God, how God created it. The people of Israel, kind of their creation, their exodus out of Egypt, it talks about the law and what God told them to do as his people. Then you have the books of history, which talk about Israel's history, not only going into the land of Israel, but also their, their uh, exile in foreign lands and their return back to it. You have poetry and wisdom books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. These things that give what we call nuggets of wisdom and truth. I mean, the Psalms were written literally to be sung by the Hebrew people. Now, we don't really sing most of them today because they don't pan out in English quite as well as they do in Hebrew. But uh, the fact of the matter is God, God part, put these as part of literature. Major and minor prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, all of these guys. These things were all taken by the Jewish people as divine literature from God. They had been collecting it. They had been copying it. They'd been very careful to preserve it. And God was very careful to preserve it. I mean, what's really cool is King Josiah finds copies of the law hidden in the temple wall. Hidden so that the king, the evil king of Israel, before him wouldn't burn the thing and it'd be lost. But these prophets' writings, man, they were, they were key. They were written not only to the people of Israel, but also some of them are written to other Nations, as my class from Nahum knows. Then you get into the New Testament. The Gospels, which condense the life of Christ and the ministry of Christ together. Talking about why he came to die, who he is. The book of history, or the history of the church, Acts. How the disciples or the apostles take the Great Commission very seriously, and they go into all the world. And we see how Christianity starts to spread then Paul's letters written to early churches and to individuals telling them, how do, we, how do we live according to Christ now? How does that change who we are? How is it how, that we should interact with one another? What is the church? What do we do as the church? How does it function? All of that is being discussed by Paul early on. Ty, uh, Timothy, Titus, both are what we call pastoral letters. 
These are to guys who were supposed to be pastors in churches. And their instructions, what they were supposed to focus on and do and instruct people, and then what they, their role as a pastor was. Philemon was written to an individual that Paul was encouraging to forgive because one of his partners, Onesimus, was a runaway slave. Onesimus wanted to restore the relationship he had with Philemon and was going to go back and help the church, but he was afraid. And so Paul wrote a letter to Philemon telling him, no, Onesimus has been good for me, but as a Christian and as a brother in Christ, forgive him. Forgive him. And if anything needs to be paid, Paul says, I'll take care of it. Then you get into the general letters. The general letters were written by some of the other apostles, written to churches scattered all throughout the New World, meant to be copied after co- or copied over and over again and spread out. Uh, they also contain information about what the church is supposed to do. What does it mean to love people? What does it mean for Christ to have died for us? And what is going to happen? Then it leads into the book of prophecy, Revelation. The revelation, the return of Christ which was supposed to be an encouragement and hope to Christians. Now, you're probably all sitting there wondering, Peter, why are you giving me a Bible 101 lesson? Why does it matter to me? So let's talk about that. Turn to your, turn, uh, open up your Bible, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and Hebrews 4, 12. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I'm sure someone could probably quote this. It says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's take a look at that here. All scripture is breathed out by God, which is that word inspiration. It's where we get that from. And is profitable. Who's it profitable for? Is it profitable for God? No, it's profitable for us. Yeah, it's profitable. It's beneficial for us. Now, why? Well, it's good for what? Teaching. This idea of doctrine, uh, providing instruction and information, both in a formal setting and an informal setting. Kids, you probably get this. Your dad probably teaches you things at home, correct? He probably does some... I'm not going to call them Bible lessons, but devotions. He'll probably talk to you guys as a family. When you do something wrong, when you mess up, does your dad tell you, hey, the Bible says this, this is what we're supposed to do and not do, right? Sometimes it goes like that. I I mean, I'm working with my kid online, okay, and we just kind of went over that. That's an informal setting. A formal setting would be at school, right, where you have classes, you have a teacher, you have curriculum, you have structure, you have tests, okay? That's formal. Teaching and instruction can happen both in a formal and informal setting. Scripture is good for for teaching others. It's good for reproof. Reproof simply is rebuke or to state that someone has done something wrong with the implications that there is adequate proof of the wrongdoing, i.e., when my son tells a lie, usually there's evident proof that he's lying to me. Uh, that he probably did not do something that he was supposed to, or he did something that he wasn't supposed to. The fact of the matter is, I can tell him that it is wrong to lie. Why? Because I have the Bible. It tells me truth. It's good for that reproof. But it doesn't just stop there. I don't just say, hey, lying's bad. I also tell him the correction part. The Bible's also good for pointing out what is the right thing to 
do. And then finally, Paul also writes to Timothy here. It says, not only is it good for instruction, for reproof, for correction, but then finally, training in righteousness. Or some of your versions may have, um, uh, oh, what was Bev's this morning? Um, living, instructions in righteousness, instructions in righteousness. It is essentially telling you how to do the right thing and how to practice it. Athletes train over and over and over and over again to try to perfect their form. Guess what, Christians? We have to continue to train over and over and over again if we want to live for God. And that's what the second half of this verse says, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word complete, wholesome. He's thoroughly ready to do every good work. And Ephesians chapter 2 makes it very clear, when we are in Christ, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Interesting. So when Christ changes who we are, there's a natural response. We're supposed to follow and serve God, which is what this good works mean. Then Hebrews 4 verse 12. Let's go there. Hebrews 4 verse 12. You guys probably also have this memorized. If not, put this down on a verse to memorize. It's a good one. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. First off, it states off that God's word is living. Does it actually have a heartbeat? I mean, you guys aren't holding a human being, right? It doesn't have a heartbeat. What does it mean by it's living and active? It has real power to it that works inside of you. How do I know that? Because the rest of this verse, it's like a two-edged sword, the writer of Hebrews said, and a sword goes into you and it pierces bone and marrow. It could cut right through. But that's, that's not where the writer wants to focus on. He says, it goes into you discerning your thoughts and intentions of your heart, your innermost person. God's word is here for our benefit to work inside of us, to show us our rights and our wrongs, to transform our heart. Now, here's the cool thing. Second Timothy, God's word is benefit to us so we can be competent and proficient in living a life for God. Hebrews 4.12, God's word cuts to the inner parts of who we are and shows us what we've done right and wrong. So finally, what should we do? This is not just for kids, guys. This is why I brought this up here. God's word is, is great for kids, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't end when you're a teenager. It doesn't end when you exit elementary. All throughout your life, God's word is good for you to turn to, even as an adult. So what should we do on a regular basis? Well, the first one, read it every day to learn more about what's in it. It's just good to know. Do you guys just read books for fun? Probably. Probably some of you do. Yes. Don't lose that. Don't lose that habit. That's a great one. Read it every day. Learn what's in it. Okay, we encourage you guys to read through the scripture in three years. It's a great way just to learn about what's in the Bible simply. But it doesn't stop there. The next thing, turn to it for answers to difficult questions. This world is looking for answers to extremely difficult questions. The question we looked at from what the kids said earlier is a tough one. 
But without Scripture, we have no answer. With Scripture, we do. We need to turn to God's Word for difficult answers. Pardon me. Next one. Binge it like you binge TV shows. I wrote that one mainly for me. It's real easy to get sucked in and watch TV show or episode after episode after episode because it's entertaining, right? But just like we want to do that with TV, we should be doing the same thing with God's Word. We should have that passion to be in it to where we just can't put it down. The next thing, study it like you're learning something new. Uh, I've used this illustration in the first two services. Pastor Paul taught me how to change a toilet this week. I was all set to do this by myself because he told me it's not really that hard of a job. I was like, okay. So when I got the toilet, I got the instructions out. I studied the instructions. I knew what I was going to do. Unfortunately, two steps into it, I realized I don't have the tools to cut a bolt off. So I had to call Paul, and then Paul walked me through the rest of it. But study. We need to study God's Word. Act like, okay, I don't know what's in here, so let me just dig, up, dig this and pull this thing apart. The next one, ponder it like you're thinking about what's going to happen in, your, in the next part of your story that you're reading. If you've ever read a fun fiction book, you know that when you put the bookmark in there and you have to close it, put it to the side because you've got to go on with the rest of your day, you're thinking about what that character is going to do next. Even if it's a TV show and you have to stop in the middle of something, you're wondering, okay, what is this character going to do next? It captivates your mind. And the Bible says that we're supposed to meditate on God's word day and night. And that's the same thing. So just like we wonder what's going to happen in the story next, we need to be thinking about God's word. How do I work this? How do I live it out? We need to ponder it. And the last one, live it out like you mimic your favorite idols or superheroes on TV. I wrote this one for my kid. My son loves the Avengers. He loves the Hulk. He loves Captain America. He likes those superheroes. What's not to like? They're strong, they're fast, they're mighty. Who doesn't want to be like them? But the key is, see, he mimics that because that's what he wants to be like. For us as Christians, what do we want to be like? We want to be like Jesus, so where do we find out more about him? What he lived like, what he looked like. I shouldn't say looked like, but who he was, really. We turn to God's word. And God's word gives us directions to live out as Christians, as God's chosen, well, I should say, as God's people who've trusted in Christ, and we, we claim we want to be like Christ, then how comes we don't live out what the Bible says? And so that's my encouragement to us, is that this world will throw a lot of things at you guys this week. And you're going to get overwhelmed and probably frustrated super easily. But there is a place that you can turn to for rest, for peace, for comfort, knowing that it will always tell you the truth, and that it has been, and I, I, I said it earlier in the early service, this book has been supernaturally preserved throughout history, that what we have is what we have, is an amazing miracle, it's miraculous, and it shows that this is God's word. It is unique, it is special. And it's something we need to be in every day, because it's how God uses, well, it's, it's how the Holy Spirit works within us primarily. He uses God's word to convict and challenge us and to show us where we need to change. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Holy Father, Lord, we do thank you for this day, and we thank you for all that is that you have given to us. We thank you for your word that you have blessed us with and given to us and preserved throughout history and throughout time. Lord, I pray that we will take it seriously that we will be in it, that we will be good students of it, and that you will continue to work inside of us through your word and through your spirit together. 
Lord, let us not take it for granted, as we know many people around the world don't have this yet in their language. They don't know the good news. Lord, we do, and help us to just take this mission, this, this command from you, you, from Jesus himself, seriously, to go into all the world to preach what is in this book, the good news of Jesus Christ. Let us take it into all the world to teach others to live it out. Lord, I pray that you be with us this week. Help us to continue to work within our families, our neighborhoods, our communities, our states, our country, to change it so that way we will look more like really your son, Jesus Christ, that we would be a good light to the darkness of this world. Lord, thank you again for all that you've done for us and how you've provided for every single need in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Have a great, wonderful Sunday. Go with God.